0: Oregon, where uh, we've been out there since June 1st, and uh, believe the Lord has led us out there, and since we've been there, we've picked up a new granddaughter out there. I'm sure you're going to be seeing some pictures later. She's about seven weeks old, and she's been a delight, and, uh, and uh, we're it's, a, it's an area that there's a great need spiritually. We haven't seen a lot of open doors yet, but I'm keeping so much time back there to try to see where God will open some doors to strengthen other Believers and so on. A uh, little assembly we meet in, it meets in a home. It's only 11 people right now. But uh, that's where it's at. That's the situation. Anyway, we're here to stu- study the Word of God together. I'd like you to begin. Uh, we're going to be looking at the highlights of the book of Isaiah. Okay, When I say highlights, I mean, I mean it's not going to be the whole book. We only have six sessions. And it's a book of 66 chapters. So we're going to look at what some might call gleanings, lessons from Isaiah the prophet. So, we will not be going consecutively through the book, though a little bit tonight, Uh, but looking at different truths that come out of this book called Isaiah. What I'd like to do tonight is take you to chapter 40 of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40. Prophecy of Isaiah chapter 40. And the book was written to Jewish people, to Israel, to Judah, the southern part of Israel. When they were away from God, they were backslidden. Chapter 1, they're called rebellious children. God ended up with some rebellious children. Yet God is pleading with them to reason together. You know Isaiah 1.18. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. And all throughout this book, he'll be trying to win the the hearts of his people back to him. But, brothers and sisters, when we get to this section in Isaiah 40, really the highlights through 48 is what we hope to look at tonight, Lord willing. You're going to see a certain theme developing. Uh, Let me show you that theme. If I can take you down in chapter 40, chapter 40, let me read verses 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8, chapter 40. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. That's verse 7 and verse 8. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Verse 9, O Zion, that bringeth good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, that bringeth good tidings. Lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. In the first line of verse 10, Behold the Lord God. Actually, he's speaking of a future day, when Judah will be doing what she should have been doing there, and announcing the good news, the glad tidings, to behold your God. And So what we want to deal with this evening is getting to know our God better through the revelation of Isaiah the prophet in Scripture. To behold, to consider, to gaze with the eyes of our heart on our God. And as we behold our God, which Isaiah uh, wants him to do even then, as we behold our God, we do remind ourselves, brothers and sisters, that God has been manifested into flesh, 1 Timothy 3.16, in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. So as we behold our God, we should see things about the Lord Jesus. So this little session, these two sessions tonight, are going to be focused on you know, what is your God like? You know, who is he? What's his characteristics? What, what's he like? behold your god and what we're going to do is not take every paragraph not take every verse just go through some of the excerpts uh, from chapter 40 through 48 that will reveal some of god's uh, characteristics what god is like start to reveal some of that uh, we're not looking at every one of them but just some of them so having said that as tonight we behold our god as isaiah exhorts here if you look at the next verse in verse 10 and the day when God will come back to Israel, who had rejected him, but someday that will change. Isaiah 40 and verse 10. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand. With his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He shall feed the flock like a shepherd. And he shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom. And shall gently lead those that are with young. Concerning his own people, we see here that you can put a title on this, and what we'd like to do tonight, just to help you remember, you might think of a better word. But I'm going to start every, every uh, characteristic about God here tonight with the letter P as in Paul, okay? And it uh, kind of sometimes helps you remember, you might think of a better word. But we come across here, the pastoring heart of God. You don't have a God who with vengeance on his people says, you, 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 uh, you've just failed, I'm out to fly an airplane into the building, I'm out to destroy you. Uh, he's not that type of a God. Yes, he will discipline to restore. But again, uh, in verse 11, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather his lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. What a God this says he's a shepherd. You know, there's a difference between a shepherd and a hunter. Both are concerned with animals. A hunter objective is to kill, isn't it? To get trophy or meat or something for him. A shepherd isn't to kill. That's not his motive. It's to protect and to guide. And God reveals himself with a pastoring heart to his people as a gentle shepherd, treating them like lambs, carrying them in his arms and in his bosom. So as we behold our God, it's not some tyrant, not, not some moody god out there uh, that just is satiated by blood and can't get enough of it. Uh, he's a shepherd. Of course, you know when we get to the New Testament, the Lord Jesus is presented as a shepherd. John 10:11, which I think you know, he said, I am the good shepherd. And there he gave his life for the sheep. Hebrews 13:20, he's called that great shepherd of the sheep. That great shepherd of the sheep. And there he, he perfects us in our daily life. In First Peter 5, 4, when the chief shepherd shall appear, he's coming back with reward and so on. And, and so he, pre, he presents himself not as a hunter, someone out to destroy life, but a shepherd, somebody out to preserve life and lead. So as we begin to behold our God, we see a, a pastoring heart in this God toward his people and that's the, one of the first things we see about God here but, the, but then in the rest of chapter 40 there's a long exposition here that we can label the power of God namely the power of God in creation not only power in doing it but power in thinking it through the power of God in creating this, this world in six days as Exodus 20 and verse 11 says but, but let's just look at it as he develops this God behold your God who is this God well, looking at uh, Isaiah 40 and verse 12. Verse 12, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with a span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a bounce? So he was asking to find somebody like him who was able to do this. Further down, you, you look at verse 18. And this is what he's getting at here. To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? We're going to see he's the incomparable God. They were making idols, making God in their image, okay? And, And they were making idols, but when you make an idol, what will you make that's like God and will compare to him? An idol has to be carried. An idol can't breathe. It's not living, but God is living. You don't have to carry God. So what in this world can you replicate? A picture, a good luck charm, an idol that you say reminds me of him to help me venerate him. What can you make that will be like God or you can compare to God? When you're dealing with somebody eternal, brothers and sisters, who creates all things, who in him was life, John 1, 4, who never sleeps, who never wearies, who who, who abhors sin and he cannot sin. When you're dealing with somebody that's great, anything you make will only bring him down. In school, in the days they had class pictures when I was growing up in Pittsburgh, uh, we'd get a hold when I was in the fifth grade or something like that of a girl's picture. And we'd deface the thing. I'd put a mustache on her or something like that, you know. And she'd look say, oh, and say, "Ooh," you'd be embarrassed, you know. You, 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 can, you can take somebody's picture and bring them down. You can also enhance them today on Photoshop and that. But when you deal with God, everything you touch to make a replica of him, you'll only bring him down. There'll be something dead that can't move. Something that has to be made to a God who was never made. And so the question is asked, what will you liken to God or what will you compare him to? So he goes on in Isaiah 40, 19 to show the foolishness of idolatry. The workman melteth a graven image and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold and casteth silver change. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooseth a tree that will not that will rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. I mean, he gets it from a tree that's dying. God is living. <laughs> and then he gets a graven image, and the thing can't move itself. Somebody has to move it. Verse 21 Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he that setteth upon the circle of the earth. Isaiah seemed to think it was round. <laughs> and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as curtains, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. That bringeth the princes to nothing, he maketh judges of the earth as vanity. Look further down at the question in verse 25. Isaiah 40, verse 25. To whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Lord? There's the question again. If you're going to have a good luck charm, something, of, a picture of God, uh, how's he going to be like me? How can you make something equal to me? If you make it, it can never be equal to God. He was never made. That's so why you have to take God by faith through the Spirit and flee from idolatry. The New Testament says in 1 John five twenty-one. Well, he goes on here to show this God. Look at verse 26. Verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number? He calleth all them by names, by the greatness of his might. For he is strong in power, not one faileth. We're meeting the powerful God in creation, in his wisdom and in his ability. Uh, The God of power here, proved by creation. Verse 27. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speaketh, O Israel? My way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God. Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard? That the everlasting God. No beginning. No end. How do you figure that one out? The everlasting God. The Lord of the creator of the heads. The Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. Fainteth not. Neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding he giveth power to the faint and so on and so we see a god who is powerful and can give power the power of god proved by creation so as he tells judah and he tells you and i to behold your god he's a god when he deals with his people and restores them he has a pastoring heart a heart that cares a gentle shepherd the lord is my shepherd psalm 23 1 He's also a powerful God in creation, and because of this magnificent power, you, you have to stay away from idolatry. Everything you make to replicate him will only insult him, will only deface him. It can only be taken by faith and not replicated like Israel was doing and the pagan nations do, because he's a powerful God. Now, th- those are some of the things that have come across in chapter 40. As we go throughout some of the highlights here, 40 through 48, you'll see other things about this God as we get to know our God and behold our God. And just taking select sections, not every verse. Let's move into chapter 41 now, okay? Chapter 41, and I'd like to take you down to verse 10. Isaiah 41 and verse 10. It says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee be not dismayed for I am thy God I will strengthen thee yea, I will help thee I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness what you have here is the presence of God with his people did you see how verse 10 started out of Isaiah 41 fear thou not for I am with thee be not dismayed many gods are distant and you, you you'll never see them. you'll never know them. you gotta guess what they want not not this god. He's a god who is present with his people. He had them build a tabernacle, a holy place in the wilderness. You know why? Let them make me a, a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Exodus 25:22. God wanting to be near his people. And so you have a god here that says, "I I am with thee." The presence of God with his people. Is that only an Israeli teaching the Old Testament or is there something in the New Testament for the believer in the Lord Jesus? Huh? I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, huh? Hebrews 13.5 Christ in you. The hope of glory, huh? Colossians 1.27. A God not only saves you, but comes into your very heart once you're saved. The language of Galatians 4 6, because you are sons. God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts pray and have a father when he's walking with you he could leave you if he chose when he's in you it's impossible and so you have the presence of god here and he goes on to say you don't have to be dismayed i will help thee and that's the same teaching we get in the new testament i quoted a verse already i'll, I'll requote it from hebrews thirteen five: i will never leave thee nor forsake thee you know what the next verse says verse 6 of hebrews 13 so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man will do unto me. Man can do things. But you have a God who is there to help you. A God who is, will never leave you nor forsake you. It's one of the few verses in the Bible you can say backwards and still be right. I will never leave thee nor forsake. thee; leave, thee forsake, never will I. Don't try that with every, any other verses. okay? <laughs> but it works on that one. <laughs> uh, I, I, the presence of God. Now, in this section here in Isaiah 41, uh, God claiming, "I will, I will." There's seven verses in that chapter where God reveals His will, and He says it several times. Let, let, let's just quickly look at these seven verses, where, where God who will do things for His people. Uh, verse 10. I'm going to reread verse 10 as we look at the the uh, presence of God with His people. Uh, verse 10. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed. I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. I will help thee. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. What God will do. That's one verse that has I wills in it. There's a second verse in this chapter that has the I will of God. Look at verse 13. Chapter 41, verse 13. For I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not. I will help thee. There to help you, the presence of God, I will. The third verse with the I will is verse 14. Verse 14. Fear not, thou worm, Jacob, and ye men of Israel. I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. He's repeating it. A God, the Lord, is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. The fourth mention of God's I will is verse 15. Behold, I will make thee a new sharp threshing instrument, having teeth. Thou shalt thresh the mountains, and beat them small, and shalt make the hills a shaft. You'll be able to overcome situations, you know, like going through a brush force. Look, look at verse 18. Verse 18, the fifth verse with I will. I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Take something barren and dry and bring it to life and refreshment. I will do it. The sixth mention of God's I wills is verse 19. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the shittah tree, the myrtle, and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the fir tree and pine and the box tree together. Life-bearing vegetation. I will do it. And then the seventh mention in this chapter is verse 27, the seven verses of the I wills of God. Verse 27. The first shall say to Zion, Behold them, behold, behold them. I will give to Jerusalem one that bringeth good tidings. The I wills of God, the very presence of God with his people. He has a pastoring heart, the power of God, and yet the same powerful God is with his people. The presence of God. Behold your God. This is your God. And this comes through in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Having said that, we now look at another section of chapter 41 to learn something else about this God we're beholding tonight. This one true God. And in the verses I want to take you in now, in chapter 41, we could call the proof of God. How do you know the Lord Jesus and God the Father are the real God? Other religions claim their gods. Uh, There's other religions out there, and they make promises, they make claims. Who are we to say the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Jehovah, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the true God? Can you know, or is it just a guess you hope you're right someday? The proof of God. God, in reasoning with his people, they were turning to other gods, remember idols? And so he challenges them with a little test that will prove him. So let's break in at verse 21, the proof of God, Isaiah chapter 41 and uh, verse 21. He says, Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. Now, he says, I- I'd like you to bring the evidence for other gods. Give your reasons. I'm willing to listen. Let- let's see uh, why you believe there's other gods. Let's see if it makes sense. Verse Verse 22. Let them bring them forth, and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things, what they be, that we may consider them, and know them, and know the latter end of them, or declare us things for to come. So let's see if your God can tell the history accurately. You know, we have a God who tells us about the six days of creation, don't we? How did Moses know that? He wasn't there to observe it. God was. And God reveals the past accurately. He tells us the former things. But more than that, at the end of verse 22, declare us things to come. And that brings us to the great subject of biblical predictions or prophecy. It has pleased God to write his Bible and make predictions hundreds, thousands of years before it happened, and you can test to see it's right. And whatever God you're trusting, you must put them through to test a prophecy. They make great claims and great promises. God says, well, well, let let them pass a test. Let them tell you things to come. He goes on to uh, amplify that. Look at verse 23. Show us the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that ye are gods, Ye do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. And verse 26. The theme continues, 41:26. Who hath declared from the beginning that we may know, and before time that we may say he is righteous? Yea, there is none that showeth. Yea, there is none that declareth. Yea, there is none that heareth your words. Can they give you the past? But not only can they give you the past, can they give you the future? You see, the longer you make a prediction, it becomes supernatural to fulfill it. A prediction that's only a week or two or three weeks away, you have a lot of evidence. I've used this example before here. We're in football season. So you're going to predict who wins the Super Bowl, huh? All right. You know who the six, seven, eight good teams are. Uh, it's only three, four weeks away. We know who's not going to win it, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, uh, you've got a lot of evidence. So you've got a fairly good chance of being right. Now, I know you don't bet. But if you did bet, how much would you bet who's going to use it, win the Super Bowl 815 years from today? So I don't even know if we'll be here. If football exists, who the teams will be? For you to be able to do something like that would require beyond human intellect, require divine miracles, a supernatural power. And so that God will prove His reality as the powerful, all-knowing God and giving us predictions that we can test and see. So produce your cause, declare us things to come. Now Peter will, will, will through the spirit of God, will, will handle this very thing of prophecy, keeping something here in Isaiah 41. Let's see what Peter said about prophecy. If you go to Second Peter 1, please, Second Peter chapter one. Second Peter 1. I want to take you down to verse 16. 2 Peter 1 and verse 16. 2 Peter 1 verse 16. Telling the believers this. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we may know unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to stop right there. The coming. He's coming in power to destroy the enemy after he saved souls to set up the righteous kingdom of god this whole world is going to change someday it's not a legend, it's not a fairy tale, it's not a good night story to make you feel good he said it's not cunningly devised fables Peter how do you know it's not a fable? look at the end of verse 16 but were witnesses of his majesty verse 17 for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice, which came from heaven, we heard we were with him in the holy mount. It takes you back to the mount, what we call the Mount of Transfiguration, recorded in Luke 9, Matthew 17, etc. When the Lord Jesus went up to that mountain, and though he was in the form of a man, he, he, he was transfigured into the glorious form of God in brightness. They saw him shine as the sun in his strength, it says. And then they heard a voice from heaven. They saw this excellent glory. He wasn't a mere man. He's the glory of God. And suddenly God the Father spoke right from heaven, speaking of Jesus. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. He said, we heard that with our ears. We saw that with our eyes. We know it's not a fairy tale. We were eyewitnesses to who he is. You say, well, Peter, I know you're convinced, but, you know, I didn't see that, you know. I guess I believe you, but I didn't see it. I didn't hear it. Peter says, you know, as wonderful as that was, I have something, even a more sure proof. You do? How could you have something more sure than an eyewitness? Look at the context now of verse 19. 2 Peter 1, verse 19. We have also a more sure more sure than what you saw, Peter? More sure than what you heard? Yeah. A more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your heart it's more short in your personal experiences of seeing Christ it's the word of prophecy it will turn the lights on for you it will point to only one man and that one man will be Jesus Christ Jesus Christ you know there's all kind of prophecies in the Bible 2,000 years ago the Spirit of God made a prophecy through Paul. It's now 2,000 years old. It was in 1 Timothy 4. And it showed the departure from the Christian faith and the corruption of the Christian faith. You look around today, you say, oh, there's false religion and it's out of control and it's messed up and they're hypocrites. The Bible said it would happen. Listen to the, a 2,000-year-old prophecy, almost 2,000 years old, in 1 Timothy four one. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils or demons. That the spirit world is going to seduce their mind. What will be the evidence of their false religions? Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats. That will look like this holy ritual that makes you pious in the eyes of God. Are there any religions that have come down in the last 2,000 years that, that prohibit certain people of, of their church to marry? You can't eat meats on certain days. It always predicted, always predicted. It also was predicted. We were talking about this up at camp when we were in prophecy, that, that the nation of Israel would come back in two stages. For over 1,900 years, they were not a nation since 70 A.D. Okay, but the Bible says in Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel sees a valley of, of dry bones. You know, the, the spiritual song is them, them dry bones. You probably heard it. And God says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel said, you know, thou knowest. And what Ezekiel saw happen, he saw these bones suddenly stand up, and flesh and muscles on the bone, well, like a living, like a mannequin, I should say, like a skeleton. And there they were, in the form of a man, but there was no breath and there was no life. The next stage, God breathed into them, and they came alive. And they were likened to the nation, the graves of Israel that has died, Jews that have been scattered throughout the nations. They were like to the Jews scattered throughout the Gentile nations like people in their graves. And the first thing that would happen, Israel would come back to their land but not be spiritually converted. No, no life of God in them. But they would be people. Then one day they would be born again and all Israel should be saved. That's going to happen. That nation's going to be saved someday. But right now they are godless as a nation. They reject the Lord Jesus. There's no spirit in them yet. Exactly what, what Ezekiel prophesied. You know concerning the Lord Jesus himself there's all kind of prophecies that will identify him how do you know he's the true Savior 500 years 700 years a thousand years four thousand years before it happened God through his prophets would give these prophecies of what his Messiah Savior would be like so you could identify him and not have to guess so you can identify him through the Word of God one of the prophecies would be his nationality You'd have to be a Hebrew of the seed of Abraham. Well, that cuts out about 50% of the world's population. So you ha- But then he has to be a Jew from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from Israel or Jacob. He has to be a Jewish person. Well, there goes 90% of the world's population, maybe more. Then he has to be of the royal family uh, uh, in, in, in the Jewish nation of David. That reduces it to, to one bloodline. He has to be of the kingly line, huh? And it reduces it to just a handful of people that ever lived. And how does your New Testament start? Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. The generation or genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's exactly who it was. Fits into the, uh, just a small minority of people. But that's not the only one it gives. It shows what kind of transportation he'd ride into Jerusalem in Zechariah 9 and present himself as king. It was not only a donkey, okay? It was an unbroken donkey. You ever try to ride an unbroken donkey? Well, he did. That's what happened. Type of when he, it, it said he would be rejected. It said he would die, and the type of death. A thousand years before it happened, David prophesied in Psalm twenty two sixteen. They pierced my hands and my feet. Never pierced David's, but as a prophet, he was prophesying of the Lord Jesus. Will die of crucifixion, the type of burial. 712 years before it ever happened isaiah prophesied in isaiah fifty three ten, he shall make his grave with the rich with the rich he was buried in a rich man's tomb by the name of joseph from the place of armathia and all and i'm just giving you a few there's at least 60 major prophecies you can see them on our website if you want to go there we'll tell you where to find it uh, at least 60 there's more that the lord jesus matched that nobody else has come close to matching So that when the apostles would preach the gospel, they would preach it this way in Acts 10.43, and to Gentiles also, to him, that is Jesus, give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. All the prophets give witness to it. God does not ask you to have blind faith. He has given you evidence that he is God and that his son is the son of God and you can identify him as Jesus Christ our Lord and looking at the prophecies and I've just quoted a few tonight you know when the Lord Jesus was on earth he said in John 14 19 behold I tell you before it come to pass that when it come to pass ye might believe that I am he that's the purpose of prophecy to grab your attention that you can know who the true God is he'll do something supernatural that is impossible to do other religions have made prophecies don't misunderstand me but they haven't been fulfilled. One religion said Jesus Christ would return in 1814 to Independence, Missouri. Well, you can go check that out and see if it happened. Okay? Didn't happen. It's easy to make a prophecy. It's another thing for it to be fulfilled. And the longer it is, the, the more it will require the hand of God. So, so we see this tremendous vehicle of prophecy. We're just giving you a few tonight. It'll cause the lights to come on. The day star to arise in your heart. Look what Peter goes on to say here in verse 20. 2 Peter 1 and verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The man didn't sit down and say, hey, I, 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 I'm feeling lucky tonight. I think this will happen. He makes a hundred predictions and he hits one of them, you know. That's not biblical prophecy. It's 100% accurate. It wasn't private interpretation. It wasn't their own will. The Holy Ghost, God the Spirit came into them. It's supernatural. And so in prophecy, we have supernatural evidence of God, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and this Bible that He wrote. Produce your cause, God says. You think there's other gods? Put them to the test. Let them make 10, 20 predictions. Uh, See how old it is. See if they came to pass. God's not afraid to be put to the test of prophecy, a place where your faith can rest in the word of God, in the prophets. So we have the proof of God. We don't have to say, well, I think he's like this, but who knows? Uh, We can prove him. Having said that, let's go back to Isaiah. Before we have a little hymn break, let's just maybe do one more, which takes us to chapter 42. And looking at some excerpts of beholding our God. And when you get to Isaiah 42, we have that word behold again in verse 1. Here's what God says. Isaiah 42 verse 1. Behold my servant. God has a servant. In Isaiah, that little phrase, behold my servant, will be two times. One, it will have to do with the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. The second time, which we're not going to look at tonight, later in the series, is Isaiah 52.13, Behold my servant. And it has to do with the sufferings on the cross of the Lord Jesus. But this is his earthly ministry, and God wants you to look at him. Isaiah 42.1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, and whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. The characteristic of God's servant. He's not going to be a political rebel rouser and overthrow government and run through and say, down with president so-and-so and and marshal up a rebellion to reform everything. That's not him. He's not going to be lifting up his voice in the street. Look what it goes on to say in verse 3. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench, till he bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged, till he hath set judgment in the earth, and the owl shall wait for his law. A bruised reed, we would say well that reed just it's not going to grow, just throw it away. He's not going to break a bruised reed. A smoking flax about ready to go out. He's not going to say get rid of it. He's going to rekindle that flame. He's come to save sinners. He is God's servant. You know, never was he more God's servant than when he didn't dominate people, but he obeyed God and gave his life for you and I. You know, Mark 10.45 says, Even the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. God asked his Son to go to the cross and die and suffer for you and I. That's why in Philippians 2 it says he took upon him the form of a servant and became obedient unto the death, death, even the death of the cross. He would obey God to the point of dying, even the tortures of the cross, to suffer for your sins and my sins. Behold my servant. You know when the New Testament talks about the Lord Jesus, it quotes Isaiah 42. Let's just see that before we have a hymn. Go to Matthew chapter 12 please. Matthew chapter 12 we're not guessing 700 and some years it's going to predict the characteristics of God's servant this is another prophecy over 700 years before and when the Lord Jesus arrive arrives here this is what happens in Matthew chapter 12 and if you'll go to verse 17 Matthew 12 and verse 17 Well, I'll read just a little earlier. Look at verse 14. Matthew 12, verse 14. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. And so there's a religious plot here, how to destroy Christ. Well, he knew that. He has all power. He could have breathed fire if he wanted to, if God would have told him to, and just wiped them out. What does he do? Verse 15. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. He didn't try to destroy his enemies. He withdrew, just got away from the situation. He's not there to break a reed, to, to quench a smoking flax. He's not protesting in the streets. The Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Luke 9, 56. He's a Savior. And after seeing that action, that he withdrew, and then he charges him in Matthew 12 and verse 16, and he charged them that they should not make him known that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, and whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry. Neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. He didn't call for Caesar to wipe out the Pharisees and protest. He withdrew. They didn't hear his voice on that verse 19 or verse 20 a bruised reed shall he not break smoking flax shall he not quench till he send forth judgment unto victory and in his name shall the gentiles trust behold my servant and it's come to pass in the earthly ministry of the person of the Lord Jesus beholding our God tonight what is our God like the proof of God the pastoral heart the power of God and the servant attitude of the preview of God's service. 700 years before God gives the preview it was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when we uh, start again after the hymn we're going to be in chapter 43 but why don't we pause here for our little hymn stretch break and then we'll go into part 2 tonight ending up around 9 o'clock or so give or take. My friend and you are. Well, in our little thought flow through Isaiah 40 through 48, we have come to chapter 43. And as most of you would know, we're taking the phrase from chapter 40, Behold your God, which Israel will do in a future day in their message, but uh, he wanted them to even start now. And we've looked at things of the proof of God, a preview of God, servant the pastor, your heart of God, the power of God, the presence of God, things like that. We're starting them all with a P, only to help you remember. So as we come to chapter 43 here, uh, one of the things we want to look at here is what we could call the purpose of God in creating his people. The purpose of God in creating his people. Why did he make a people for his name? Why did he choose Israel? And why does he have a church today called by his name? What is his purpose? He will reveal that purpose here uh, uh, to Israel in the Old Testament and look at chapter 43 and verse 1. Verse 1. But now saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. So God formed him, he created Israel. Jacob. And and God made them what they were. He redeemed them. He saved them. He delivered them. And he says, you're mine. So when I say the purpose of God with his people, I don't mean every human. I mean God's people or his children in the New Testament. Those he has come into a covenant relationship with. And he has a purpose for them. And he wants them to know that purpose. They had forgot it. They had gone after other gods, forgetting the whole reason God brought them where they were. Uh, you look here at verse 3 Isaiah 43 and verse 3 For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopian and Seba for thee Gave a lot up for you, destroyed nations for you uh, You must mean something to me well, well, what's the purpose? Well, it starts to be revealed here in verse 7 The purpose uh, of God for his people, in verse 7 even every one that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. And here comes one of the purposes. Not just for your enjoyment of life, though that could happen sometimes, for my glory. In a world of satanic rebellion, in a world in the deadness of sins, God forms a people and redeems them to honor him to glorify him we live in a world according to Romans 121 when they knew God they glorified him not as God neither were thankful they didn't thank God they didn't give him the credit for their existence they didn't give him the worth and praise he deserves they never thanked him but in those he creates for his name they, he has a thankful people and we're to give thanks in everything you know be a thankful people uh, a people who glorify him and you know when we get to the New Testament that's exactly what we're told in ephesians three twenty one unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus we're here you say well we're here to grow we're here for this some some reasons I understand we're really here for the glory of God you know brothers and sisters and I speak to myself too that whatever we do in word or deed we're to do to the glory of God any job decision you make any marriage decision you make, any church decision you make, whatever you do, will this honor God? Will this show his will? Well, and I realize we battle with the flesh, and it's not, always, it's not automatic. Uh, and to be a thankful people, and everything give thanks. To honor him. You're the source of my food. You're the source of my life. Paul would say, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. First Corinthians 15.10 A people who will glorify God, not take the credit themselves, you know, like you see your sports figures do. They'll beat their chest when they uh, uh, score a basket. They'll do some Hulu dance in the end zone, like, you know, they just conquered the world when they get a touchdown. Uh Uh, But a people who give God the glory for what happens. Created for the glory of God. Also, the purpose of uh, uh, the people of God, he tells Israel here, if you look at verse 10, verse 10 of Isaiah 43 ye are my witnesses saith the Lord and my servant whom I have chosen that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he before me there was no God neither shall there be any after me or be after me I even I am the Lord and beside me there is no God verse 12 of Isaiah 43 I have declared and have saved I have showed when there was no strange God among you therefore ye are my witnesses saith the Lord that I am God God has a witness on earth the Old Testament was Israel. They had the history of being redeemed by God and Pharaoh being defeated. And they could give witness to what God had done. There's a true God and his creation and all that goes with it they were entrusted with. Uh, God had witnesses in Israel. You do know what the Lord Jesus told his disciples right before he ascended, don't you? Acts 1.8, And ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, and so on witnesses to the lord jesus now the son of god as savior and lord and and so uh, the world's not going to tell you this god has a people who will act as witnesses the purpose of the people of god there's a purpose there's meaning to your life if you're saved you have an identity created to give god glory in a world that doesn't created to be witnesses unto god himself there is no other god they claim there is but you have the unique message and witness Of the one true God and Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And then further in chapter 3, we see another purpose, we've alluded to it already, but look at verse 21. Verse 21 of chapter 43. This people have I formed for myself, they shall show forth my praise. We glorify him in many ways, and as we alluded to already, we show forth his praise, we talk about him. We, we say the Lord is good, the Lord did this, and the Lord, we show forth, it's of Him, all things are of Him. Might remind you of a verse in the New Testament, that we've been called out of darkness, into His marvelous light, to show forth the praises of Him, who hath called us out of darkness, First Peter two nine, Created to show forth the praises of Him. And to give God the credit for something. And to give his, his, his greatness. Uh, and I fail in this too, but somebody, sometimes by the grace of God you come through. Somebody says it's a beautiful day and sometimes I'll get the courage, not all the time. And say, yeah, well, isn't the Lord a great designer? You know? And it's praising God. It's called a sacrifice of praise, by the way. Hebrews 13:15. Sacrifice means you're going to have to give up something. It's going to hurt sometimes. Uh, you're going to look, be looked at as weird. But finding ways to praise God. He's created us for His praise and His glory and to be His witnesses. The purpose of the people of God. There is meaning to life. You don't have to turn to something else. God has given you meaning. That's chapter 43. Now let's move on in our beholding our God. He has a purpose. But let's move on to chapter 44. Looking at just as some select scriptures here. In chapter 44. Let's go down to verse 6. Take you down to verse 6, chapter 44. Thus saith the Lord, and you notice that's capital L-O-R-D, if you have the King James translation, that, is, that means it's the word Jehovah. Thus saith the Lord, or Jehovah, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord, capitals Jehovah, of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Now, as we're going to see in a minute, you have the truth of this one God. Beside me there is no God. But we learned a plurality of God here. The plurality of God. He's a, he's a plural unit of one. Now look at verse 6 carefully. Thus saith the Lord, Jehovah, King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Savior, the Lord of hosts. Huh. Well, that's two alone right there. Jehovah and Jehovah. He's a plurality of one. How is that possible? We also know he's God the Holy Spirit. We call it a triunity or a trinity. Remember back in Genesis 1.1 and God created the heaven and the earth? If you're reading Hebrew, the word for God will be Elohim. Whenever you have I am in the Hebrew, it's plural. Elohim, is it always means two or more. Two or more. Elohim does. Two or more. Remember Genesis 1.26? God said, "Let us make man in our own image." Let who us? A plurality. How can you have a plurality of one? You say, "May I have an orange, please?" I said, "Certainly, may have an orange." How many are there's like one orange. So you have one orange. You peel it and there's 16. They say there's 16. I've never counted them. So I better withdraw the number 16. <laughs> there's a plurality of segments inside. Okay? And they're all identical orange. They have the same exact property to them. And so you divide, there are 16 pieces. Yeah, hey, sure, kids, 16 pieces, but it's one orange. You have a plurality of one. A cluster of grapes. One cluster of many grapes with the same identical property. A plurality of one. You have a plural God here, and, and that He's the tri-unity. And we, we run out of it, it's hard to understand, but it's presented in Scripture. Some simple illustrations that will fall short as you look at your index finger. One finger, holding up number one here. I see three joints. They all have the same muscle and blood in them, you know. But uh, they're three in one. Uh, classic example is water, liquid, freeze it. Go up to New York right now, it'll be ice, you know. Uh, go somewhere it's hot and boil it, it's steam. Three different forms, exact same property, okay. There's all kind of things in nature that would show you a, a three in one. And that is how God presents himself. I am the first you're the first. That means there's nobody before you. In the beginning was God. Uh, there's Nobody that made God. He was there in the beginning. No one's before you, and I am the last. When you're last, who comes after you? You say, Muhammad. Not not when you're the last. I, I am the last. Nobody after him. He's eternal on both ends. You know this verse here, the plurality of God. Preaching years ago in New Jersey, and After the meeting, a lady stayed behind, a younger woman, maybe in her 20s or 30s, younger married woman. Her name was Carol, and she was a Jehovah Witness. I wish this would happen often, it doesn't, but the Spirit of God was working that day. She she says, I want to be saved, but she says, I I just can't see where Jesus is God. If I could see that from the Bible, I'd believe. And I I prayed to the Lord, and I sat down, and, and I said, well, look at this verse. I said, how many Jehovah's do you see there? well it looks like two (laughs) and one's the Redeemer I said what does he say I am the first and the last I am the first and the last beside me there is no God I said will you turn with me and if you'll do that tonight keep something here please back in Isaiah but go to Revelation 1 where we turned that night we are up in this camp and go to Revelation chapter 1 and it's the revelation of Jesus Christ the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I had her read verse 17 as John is seeing the resurrected Christ here. Verse 17 of Revelation 1. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold. I said, who's that that liveth and was dead? That's Jesus, she says. So He just said he's the first and the last. So the Old Testament says that's God. That's Jehovah. She trusted Christ as her God that day and lived to show up by the grace of God. She saw it from the word of God that Jesus is Jehovah, the th- part of the three-in-one God, for lack of a better way to put it. We have the plurality of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And here Isaiah shows Jehovah in two forms, uh, in two persons, the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and the last, and there's no other God. One God, a plurality of one. Getting to know your God, he's a plurality of one. Having said that, if you progress to chapter 45, chapter 45, again, some other things about our God as as we behold him and want to know him through the word of God. What I'm going to take you now next, we could call the prerogatives of God prerogative his right to choose things his right to do things because he's the creator the prerogatives of God Uh, we'll break in here at verse 6 verse 6 here that they may know from the rising of the Sun and from the West that there is none beside me I am the Lord and there is none else now watch verse 7 I form the light and create darkness I make peace and create evil, or some of you will have calamity. It doesn't mean the creation of a sin, but of negative things. Wars and that, he, he, he orchestrates sometimes for his purposes. Even natural things. I, I make peace and create evil, or some of you will have calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. But of course he brings compassion out of calamity, that's another story. I, the Lord, do all these things. Verse 8. Drop down, ye heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness, let the earth open, and let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherd potsherd strive with the potsherd of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioned it, Why makest thou? Or, or, Or thy work he hath no hands. Woe unto him that saith to unto his father, What begettest thou? Or to the woman, What hast thou brought forth? And so on. What we've come across here is the prerogatives of God. By being the creator, he has creative rights. Creative rights. Since you produced your children, if your parents, what right do they have to say to you? Why am I a boy? Why am I a girl? Why, why did you have me? It's not, that's not their right to say that. Just like somebody at the pottery wheel making a bowl. And the bull jumps off and says, I should be a cup. You don't have a say in the matter. The person creating you does. You know, today we hear about human rights, and I understand there's such a thing as human oppression. And now we hear of animal rights. Give enough time, you're going to hear of vegetable rights. But what we don't hear about is creative rights. And Isaiah presents, based on the God of creation, that he has creative rights, he has prerogatives, he knows what he's doing. And even when he brings calamities, there's reasons to teach lessons and to bring compassion out of it and so on. And God will take credit for all that. Our God setteth in the heavens, he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Psalm 115, verse 3. Some will call it sovereignty. He has the right to choose. He has the right to choose in the circumstances of life. And so we, we have to have confidence in a God like this. We have to give him his creative rights. You, you know, I, there was an elder in the old assembly I was at in New Jersey. and I'm not going to go into details. Somebody had a rough situation in their life. And they came to him and they said, why me? It's a hard thing to answer. He said, let me ask a question back to you. Why not you? Why not you? It made the person think of it. That we don't understand all these things but there's a God who cares that God's in the control and we have to give him his creative rights that he knows what he's doing that all things indeed do work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose so teaches Romans 8 and verse 28 so you come to a God who has creative rights and we don't hear that today and in the church let's not so much be focused on my right in the church and this right what is his rights does he have a right to say how his church will be run? He did create it, didn't he? He is the builder of his church. You say, well, I like this kind of music and I like that. What does he like? Getting to know your God, giving him his creative rights, the prerogatives of God. And then we go further. It, it, it's been throughout our section, but it's a lot in this chapter 45. And we could call it this, another characteristic here as God reveals himself, the non-partisanship of God. The non-partisanship of God. In politics, the big word is partisanship. You know what partisanship means? I equally respect both parties. And I give them equal time and equal this. And uh, uh, I equally respect both parties, even though their ideas are different. they got the right of choice and so on. It's called partisanship. And uh, that's a positive thing. Well, you're uh, partisan. That's good. But when you're nonpartisan, well, you only care for your own side. You you ignore the others. Nonpartisan is a negative word. But here, the nonpartisanship of God, that he's the only party that's God. And that's what I mean by that. There's only one God. He doesn't share that with anybody. Earlier in Isaiah 42.8, he says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory will I not give to another, nor my praise to graven images. Since he is God and only God, there's things that he gets that you cannot equally give to someone else. Well, you can be the authority of the church, and you can save me too, and you can guide my life. No, you And I can call you the titles of God, reverend and holy and father. Don't you dare. There's things that he doesn't share his glory and his praise with others. He's, he's nonpartisan. He's the only God. You, you've heard the verses before as we've been reading them tonight. But look at him here in chapter 45 and verse 5. Chapter 45 and verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. There's there's only one God. Verse 6. That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Look at the end of verse 14 of chapter 45. The end of verse 14. Surely God is in thee, and there is none else. There is no God. Look at the end of verse 18. The end of verse 18. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Look look at the end of verse 21. There is no God else beside me. A just God and a Savior, there is none beside me. Look at the end of verse 22. For I am God, and there is none else. And that's just one chapter. You think he's nonpartisan? No. He wants us to know the truth. You say, "Well, my God's great. Your God has something to offer. My God has something to offer. And let's take the best of both gods." I, I will not share my glory with another. There's no other God. He's the only Creator. It's a single God. A single. There's only one God. Nonpartisan. You're not being biased in that when you say it's only God. It's true. This is your God, and there is none else. So we see the non-partisanship of God himself. Also in chapter 25, we see the promise of God for the nations, the world. The promise of God. In this context of only one God, look what he says in verse 22. The promise of God. Verse 22. Look unto me, and be ye saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Look unto me and be ye saved. You look to me and I will save you. And it's an unbiased invitation. All the ends of the earth. just not one nation. As John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, etc. And so the invitation to be saved, the promise of salvation. And isn't that what we read in the New Testament? And it comes through his son, the Lord Jesus, who is the savior of our sins by dying for our sins, burying them, paying for them, and rising again as Lord. And we read in Acts 4.12, Neither is there salvation, and any other, for there is none other name under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. And so we, only God can save. There's none else. So if I want to be saved, I have to look to God, not man. That's why it's so important to understand, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. For if he's not the Son of God, he can't save. Just another holy religious man. But because he's uniquely the Son of God and none else, he's the only one that can save. (laughs) As we said, neither is there salvation in the other, none other name under heaven, given among men whereby we must be saved, Acts 4.12. That's why no matter how sincere people are, their way will not be saved unless it's in God. He's the only one that can save. And the Lord Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior. That's why Romans 10, 9 says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, or Jesus is Lord, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You have to look to God for salvation. And he will save you from hell and from the wrath of God and your sin and your guilt. Become your savior and become your shepherd. But you must look to him. There's none else that can do it. Only God can save That's why only the Lord Jesus is the Savior, for he is God in the flesh. I am God, and there is none else. The great promise of God is just not financial help, health, help, uh, as important as those things might be to you. It's everlasting salvation. should not perish, but have everlasting life. The greatest promise you could ever have is to be saved. Where are you looking? Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. As Jonah discovered in the belly of what we call the whale, sometimes salvation is of the Lord. Jonah 2:9. Well, having said that, let's go to chapter 46. Got three more chapters in our little scenario here of beholding our God and things that are coming out. And chapter 46 of Isaiah, and verse one. And what we could title these f- opening verses here. Is the parental care of God for his people. The parental care. God cares for his children as a parent would do. Let's see what he means here. Again, he's kind of challenging them on their going to idols, you know, idols, uh, making them think to behold their God. Look at verse 1 of uh, Isaiah 46. Bell boweth down, Nebo stupid, their idols were upon the beast and upon the cattle your carriages were heavy loaden they were a burden to the weary beasts now now he's picturing uh, going out to battle or something and taking these idols along for good luck charms like people put them on the dash of their car and and he said you know what they do Uh, they, they add weight to your wagons so maybe rather than going five miles in an hour you got these heavy stone idols you're gonna go three miles an hour they not only don't help you they delay you in getting there they become a burden to you they actually ensnare you he says they're heavy loaden. Look at verse 2. They stooped, they bowed down together. They could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. They don't make your burden lighter to make you heavy. Then they end up losing. They too are, are taken by the other side. Verse 3, in contrast, hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb. You have a God who you don't have to carry him. In your pocket, around your neck, on your dashboard, he carries you. I will carry you. You're born by me. It's not a God I have to take. It's not a portable God. That's not a God if you have to carry it, if you have to place it somewhere, if you have to lock it around your neck for a good luck charm. I'm a God who carries you, and I'll carry you, uh, so to speak, from the cradle to the grave, uh, from, from the belly which are carried from the womb. Look at verse 4. Even to your old age, I am He. Even to the horror hairs will I carry you. I have made, I will bear, even I will carry, and will deliver you. To whom will you liken me, and make me equal, and compare me, that we may be like? That question again. You know, the older I get, I love verse 4. <laughs> I carry you even in your old age. And your gray hair, your whore head. You, you, you pick up different things in older years, don't you? And they talk about health care and all that, and I understand. But you have a God who's not going to walk out of you in old age. He'll take you through those valleys, and He can be there for you, and He'll carry you through. And He'll meet your needs. My God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19. What a God, we have the parental care of God, that from the cradle to the grave, unless the Lord Jesus comes first. No matter how gray your hair gets, you don't have to carry something to get through life. He will carry you. What we carry holds us back. He the parental care of God. What a God. You know, behold you God. What can you make that's like him? The incomparable God. Of course, manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ. Moving to chapter 47 please. Chapter 47. I want to read the opening verses. In chapter 47 you have God's judgment against this institution called Babylon. L- look at verse 1. Isaiah 47 verse 1. Come down and set in the dust O virgin daughter of Babylon. Set on the ground, there is no throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstone and the grind mill, uncover thy locks, make bare the leg, uncover the thigh, pass over the rivers. Thy nakedness shall be uncovered, yea, thy shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance and will not meet thee as a man. As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is his name the Holy One of Israel. Verse 5, set thou silent and get thee into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt be no more be called the lady of kingdoms. What you here have is the passion of God against sin. Babylon is being judged for her sin here. And we are talking about this up at camp. Babylon's great sin was humanism. Let us make us a name, Genesis eleven four. Let us, man is the source, make us, man is the means, a name, man is the reason. Of the people, by the people, for the people, something like that. Rather than of God, by God, for God. And man has looked at as the source of his ideas and strength and salvation and, and sustenance on earth and survival. He's looked at the means he has to do it. He'll design it. He's the reason that uh, man, man is able to save man. He gets the glory. You know? and, and God takes his system, and sometimes it's centered in a nation and city, and he's, the passion against sin. As he says, speaking against Babylon in Isaiah 13:11, "I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. Cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Arrogancy of man! He's going to punish the world. You have a God who has passion against sin. Look what he goes on to say here to Babylon here, in verse 8. Therefore, hear thou this, that thou art given to pleasures, that dwelleth carelessly." that saith in thine heart, I, and none else beside me, I'm the greatest, you know, I shall not sit as a widow, neither shall I know loss of children. But these two things shall come to thee in a moment, and one day, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon thee in their perfection uh, for the multitude of thy sorceries, and for the great abundance of thy enchantments. goes on to say in verse 11, therefore shall evil come upon thee thou shalt not know from whence it riseth and mischief shall fall upon thee and thou shalt not be able to put it off and desolation shall come upon thee suddenly which thou shalt not know it goes on to show the destruction of Babylon not only of that day but as we are studying the camp in Revelation mystery Babylon is still there and God's going to burn her with fire and her commercial side is going to come to an end in one hour what you have is the passion of God against human arrogancy and sin and pride of man, by man, for man. I, I can design my salvation, I can run it, and I get the glory. I can design the church, I can run it, and man gets the standing ovations. You know, stuff like that. I can control my life, I can get through the arrogancy of man, the passion against sin. There's coming a worldwide judgment in the midst of God's mercy to this world, where, where the great day of his judgment has come, and who shall be able to stand, or the great day of his wrath has come. And who should be able to stand Revelation 6.17? We are studying that, that great tribulation, the wrath of God. And, and even though he's not executing it yet, because he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. He gives man a chance. He holds back. But yet, we read in Revelation that the angels have bowls, and they're full now. And when it gets full, they dump them out on planet Earth. I think you can relate to that. Uh, uh, if you've had children... They keep doing something, and you deal with it, and they keep doing it, and one day you say, I've had it up to here. And when you're full, <laughs> they're in trouble when you've had it up to here. There's a day in God's patience and His holiness uh, that He will execute wrath, the passion of God against sin, because He's silent now. Don't let that fool you. You know, Isaiah 50, verse 21. These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. And thou thoughtest that I was altogether one, such a one as thee. Psalm 50, I should say, verse 21. God does nothing. I sleep tonight, I eat tomorrow. He he must not care. God said, don't let my silence fool you. For I will tear you in pieces and there shall be none to deliver you. There's coming a day when when, when he can wait no more because of his holiness. And Babylon not only received it in the Old Testament, the system goes on in the New, and there's the passion of God against sin. This is your God, a holy God, who will indeed judge sin unless the person is saved. Yep, brothers and sisters, we get to chapter 48. chapter 48 is not talking about Babylon, but God's people, Israel. Look at verse 1. Isaiah 48 and verse 1. Hear ye this, O house of Jacob, it's not Babylon now, which are called by the name of Israel. And are come forth out of the waters of Judah, which swear by the name of the Lord, and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth, nor in righteousness. And so now he deals with his people. And they were hypocritical. They, they had to form, but not in truth. But he will not destroy or annihilate his people like Babylon. As Revelation shows, the whole thing will be destroyed. But what he does, and we can call this the purifying of God. God will purify his people through chastening and trials, not destroy them. The purifying of God with his people. The destroying of God for Babylon. But the purifying of God for his people. Look what he goes on to say here in verse 9. Verse 9 of uh, Isaiah 48. For my name's sake will I defer mine anger. And for my praise I will refrain for thee that I cut thee not off. I'm not going to give you full anger. I'm not going to cut you completely off. Verse 10, Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it. So for God's own namesake and his promises, he will purify, he will refine his people, uh, because in the furnace of affliction. So, you know, we as believers can go through the furnace of affliction, the normal things of life. And sometimes it's even the chastening hand of God. As the Corinthians were told that when God judges us, he does it so he doesn't condemn us with the world. He chastened whom he loves. Listen to Revelation 3.19 to the church. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be ye zealous, therefore, and repent. God allows things to get us our retention. He wants to re- re- refine us, purify us, get the self-confidence to sin, and, and that we look to him more. And so while he has a passion against sin and will bring the world system and people to an end, he will not do that to his people. He holds back and it's only a purifying effect. Listen to 1 Peter 1.7. That the trial of your faith, the testing of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found in praise, honor, and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ that though he will test us with fire, sometimes it'll, death and sicknesses and job loss and trials and being alone and being rejected, and, and sometimes our own sins get us into problem. Yet he's a God who, as many as I love, I rebuke and chase. He's refining us. He does it through the assembly sometimes. And it's all meant to refine us and to purify us for himself. You know, why do you spank your own children and not the neighbors in the grocery store? because I love my own (laughs) I don't really have authority over the others you see you might all want to but you'll do things to your own children you can't do to others because you have a parental love for them and that's the purifying of God with his people so while you have a passion of God against sin for those who aren't saved and don't repent there's nothing but destruction ahead of them I will punish the world for its evil sudden destruction 1 Thessalonians 5 3 but for the believer there will be trials there will be problems but it's all for your purifying. And though it be tried with fire, and as you come through it, and all that dross of self-confidence and self-wisdom, and it starts to be burned out of us and our own self-sin, not that it's eradicated, but but, but subdued, will be found in the praise, honor, and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So may God encourage you tonight in beholding your God. What is your God like? We have this revelation of God in these wonderful passages. We didn't exhaust this section we just look at some highlights of Isaiah 40 through 48 now I see one minute on the clock so maybe a brother has something to add for one minute or two, something that hit you that you just want to contribute to the assembly tonight uh, that you've seen from the word also you have that chance now brethren okay okay Tomorrow, when we re- reassemble, <coughs> excuse me, at four o'clock, we have two messages before supper, right four to six, and then supper. We'll continue on in these gleanings, these lessons from Isaiah. Some of the chapters we'll be in tomorrow is Isaiah seven, Isaiah 37 and 38, Isaiah seven, Isaiah 37, and 38, some others, and as well as other scriptures that go along with it, and learn some other lessons as re- 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 revealed in the prophet Isaiah. And then Sunday, some of my favorite material is ahead of us, okay, in Isaiah. But we'll make you wait before you know what it's about. Uh, Let's just ask God's blessing. This God we've been beholding tonight to encourage you. If you're not saved, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. If you are saved and things have got in the way of your life, behold your God. May, May you grow in understanding and appreciation of a God who from parental care to his prerogatives, his passion against sin, his purifying for his people, that you understand and know your God better. Our Father in heaven, we just close in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank thee for this time in his name with thy assembly and thy people, thy children. And they're out tonight to hear thy word and we thank thee for this desire in their heart. We do pray that thy word will reach the heart as they meditate, as they think, as they talk one to another. And what we try to communicate, we come short, we, we fail, but we try to give thy word by thy grace, and that the word, the scriptures will encourage them in things that might be ahead of us, and our daily thinking, and it will build us up more in the love and excitement and understanding of the one true God, which is thee, and that we now know through thy beloved Son, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask thy blessing on these meetings, thy dear people, and that Thou indeed will be glorified. There will be more God-likeness because of it. I will be glorified. That's why we're here. And so we just look to thee tonight with thanksgiving and asking this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Father. Amen.